How was Jesus in high school? <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> From the bottom of my heart. Okay. Today we are talking about hope. Today is a message of hope. Hope is the desire or expectation that something is going to happen. It is a feeling or a yearning, a longing for something. You know what hope is. Uh, for instance, uh, Drew really hoped that Alexia would not find the date of his birthday, but she did, and now we are celebrating the year of Jubilee. And as you will find out, it is going to get crazy. It's going to be awesome. Um, hope is a powerful thing. All of the best stories contain hope. All of the best romances contain hope. Action stories are at its best when it contains hope. Your story is at its best when it contains hope, when you see the hope that God has for you. Hope is a powerful thing. And the worst stories are those when hope has failed. For instance, we all experienced this earlier this year uh, when we hoped that OSU could get one yard in the game against Baylor. <laughs> we hoped against hope that it could get one yard in six plays. Go Pokes. <laughs> Go Pokes. But how about a not light example? Recently I was in Poland and I was serving refugees that are recently coming out of a war in Ukraine. And I have much that I could say about how they're experiencing, how they're wrestling with hope. But I don't want to talk about them. I would love to talk about them. Um, but the story that I heard comes from Poland. Um, I, as I was walking the streets of Warsaw, I heard this story. I was walking the streets of Old Town, and Warsaw has a powerful story. It was one of the first places that Nazi Germany took over when it started to invade all of Europe. And it was conquered, it was taken over for all of the war. And it experienced all of the atrocities that the Nazis did to everyone. In Warsaw, in the city of Warsaw, there was a, a band of rebels that were throughout the whole city, and they waited, and they yearned, and they longed for the day that they could break free of the Nazi regime. And one day, they heard that an army was coming to free them, and they hoped for that. And on the day of their liberation, they fighting broke out in the city, these rebels that had waited all throughout the war. But what they didn't realize is that the army that was coming, the Russian army, was not a liberating army. It was a conquering army of a new regime. And as fighting broke out in the streets, the army 
waited on the riverbanks and let these rebels get slaughtered. And as the fighting died, they came in and took over, and the communist regime took over for the years to come. Hope is a powerful thing, and it matters. It matters what you hope in. My question for you today is, is Christianity a true hope or a false hope? It is a yes or a no. And if it is a no, then as Paul says today, we are liars and we should all walk out of this room and go on our merry ways because what we believe is in vain. But if it is true, then as 1 Peter says, you have been born into a living hope. Hope is a powerful thing. That is our question tonight. And what I want to say, even before we talk about we will be talking about the evidence. We will, all of this comes down to one question. The resurrection, did it happen, yes or no? And I will be presenting evidence for that, that I believe that it is as firm as you can say anything in history happened. I will be trying as hard as I can to show you the truth of that. But I'm going to be honest. I know from the outset that reason won't save you and reason won't keep you. Because Paul, at the very beginning of the 1 Corinthians, he says that I did not come to preach a message of rationality, but I came to preach Christ crucified. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. I want to suggest that this is a spiritual process for Christians and non-Christians. This is a spiritual process, not of rationality, but of power, of you opening your hearts up to God. And that's my challenge. And so with that being said, would you pray with me? Father God, Thank you for the chance to talk about you. Thank you for the chance to talk as much as I can about your resurrection and about what it is, the truth, the bedrock of truth and hope that we have. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts. I ask that your spirit would be working in our minds. God, I ask that you would help us see you clearly, Jesus. That they could see the hope that is in you and that it would transform every area of our life, and that the grace that you have for us would work powerfully in them. But Lord, I acknowledge that it is you, and it is not me speaking wise words. God, I know my words have no power, but it is all you. I lift this up to you, and it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and as you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I want to just give you a little bit of background, not, not only on the text, but also on the letter of Corinthians. The letter of Corinthians, it is um, written in A.D. 55. That is not debated. Jesus Christ died in A.D. 33. That is not debated. That is 22 years of a gap between the letter, the things that we're going to be writing about, and the death of Jesus. That's, that's going to be come into clarity in a little bit. I just wanted to make that, show you a little bit. You guys, 
aren't even 22 yet, okay? I am 25, 25, not 49, okay? 25, and these are the truths the church has always said. It's not even 22, it is even earlier, and I will get into that in a little bit. In the context that Paul is writing, chapter 15 is all about the resurrection, but the problem that he, he is writing to, it all starts in verse 12. They had these issues, they had these, these beliefs that were in the way, and it's fascinating to think through the differences between them and us. I don't, almost don't even want to get into it because you don't care. We don't even have the same uh, mindsets. Their issues that he's going to be talking about a little bit is this idea of docetism, um, that they believe that uh, bodily resurrection meant nothing. Uh, you've read Percy Jackson, okay? You've heard or you've watched these movies. They thought Elysium, that to be released from the body, that's the important thing. Why would I care about bodily resurrection? So if bodily, bodily resurrection doesn't matter, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. That's how they worked. Paul says, no, Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if that matters, if he did, then you did too. We have a whole other host of issues coming in the way, and we're going to be talking about that later. But that is what we're going to be talking about. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and then we will get going. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 says this. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you unless you believed in vain. In vain is going to come up a lot in this chapter, and it is important. And I just want to say a couple things at the outset. To my non-Christian friend, I am so glad that you're here. Um, thank you for coming. What the message of Christianity is, it is a message of hope that the gospel goes forth and it transforms our lives. It is salvation and it is us clinging to that. And I hope that you can hear it. I hope that your heart has the ability to hear it and the grace works through you because it is a message of hope and grace. To my Christian friend, my challenge is, do you know the gospel? Like, as I'm saying this right now, can you say it in your head right now? Like, what are its key points? If you were to put it like a five on your hand, what would they be? Like, can you say them? Do you, do you talk about them? Because we are supposed to be a gospel people. They are supposed to be on our hearts daily as you preach to yourself how your feelings are filtered through the gospel because it is a foundational truth. They are supposed to be on your mind as you say truth and untruth. And they are supposed to be on your lips as you proclaim the message of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Do you know the gospel? Because if you do not, I want to challenge you to listen close. Because this chapter is one of the most significant chapters in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul outlines the gospel in a formal way. And here it is, verse 3. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That is a beautiful statement right there. 
received. A.D. 55, and Paul shows us right there that it wasn't even then. What it shows us, as all scholars agree, that from the very outset, from Jesus' death at A.D. 33, the church has always proclaimed this. There was no debate. The church has, from its founding, said these message, this is the proto-apostles' creed. This is what they went and died for, taken to the grave, always, everywhere. This is what the church of God proclaimed. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, Cephas, Peter. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. That is dead. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me, the apostle Paul. And at the sake of belaboring this point, I want to walk through each of those points just so you see what Paul is saying. The first one, that Christ died for our sins. Here's what you need to know. Here's what the Bible will say that your culture will not. Your culture will actually say the exact opposite. So listen close. There is such a thing as sins. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as good and evil. And let me tell you this. God does not play the game of you can play good this week and bad this week. God calls every single person evil. That we all had original dignity. But we've all, as Romans 3.23 said, fallen short of the glory of God. There is sin. There is evil. Because why did Christ die? There is sin. And Christ died for your sins. My non-Christian, that means that you can enter into the atonement and God does not have wrath for you. That is the grace part. My Christian, that is the atonement. Do not listen to anyone that tells you that you don't have to listen to things like substitutionary atonement. Christ, that they say things like atonement means that God has wrath and I don't believe in an angry God. No, God does have wrath towards sin. God does have wrath towards evil. God is a just God. He is a perfect God and He will judge all of us righteously. And we will look to that and say, you did righteously, Lord, all of us. And the atonement means that Jesus chose for the joy to step into that wrath and take it for our place because He is God too. You have to cling to this idea of sin And you have to cling to the idea of atonement because that is the gospel. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. I'm going to be honest. I'm not entirely sure why that was in there. It's a little bit redundant to my mind. He died. And by the way, not only did he die, he was buried. But I don't think it was redundant to theirs. 
if you see what they're going to struggle with later, that idea of a bodily resurrection, it kind of makes sense. It's saying he died and he went into the grave. His body went into the grave. And I just want to say this, that is a historical fact that everyone agrees with. And we'll get into that part later. Verse 3, not verse 3, point 4. He rose from the grave according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Scriptures like Hosea 6 that says, On the third day the Lord will restore us. Scriptures like Psalm 16, Blessed are you, Lord, for you did not let your Holy One see decay. Your Holy One, your anointed Messiah, see decay. These promises that have been made for the people of God throughout all the years. Scriptures like the sign of Jonah that Jesus says that three days and three nights in the grave. Scriptures like Jesus when He said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of the temple of His body, that He rose from the grave, according to the Scriptures. And finally, that He appeared to many eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And all I want to say right now is this, that your faith is not based on circular reasoning. Your faith is not based on something that the Scriptures say, and the Scriptures say that the event happened, and the event tells you that the Scriptures are right. No. It is a historical fact that all of history attests to. B.C. A.D., before Christ, Anio Dominii, the year of our Lord. And the Scriptures are the primary witnesses to that. And that will be the second part of it. That is the Gospel clarified. And that is the message of hope. And it is a beautiful yes or no. And now, Paul tells you how the gospel is personified in his life. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. That beautifully paradoxical statement that shows the grace of God that is within you and that you work with it. This twofold, that God works and you take it and run. And it transforms the enemies. Of God. As he says in Galatians 1.23, they only heard the report. The man who, firmly, who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. The gospel goes forth and transforms even its enemies. And that is a key witness to why the resurrection is real. Because they saw something. And finally, we will see him solidify that. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? 
If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God, that He has raised up Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. A true hope or a false hope. I love the beautiful simplicity of it. He says, you answer right now, yes or no. It is not one or the other. It is not something that you can choose on your terms. He says, if the resurrection happened, then you give your life to it and you let the, res- you let the grace of God transform you powerfully like you see it in His personified life. And if it doesn't, then man, we are to be pitied. This is the historical bedrock of your faith. This is the bedrock of hope. And Paul places everything on the resurrection. And I believe you should too. My question that I said in the beginning, is Christianity a false hope or a true hope? That part we will try to answer in the second half. Let's take a short break. So I asked, I asked, um, is Christianity a true hope or a false hope? And that's what I hope that we can talk about today on the second half. Because hope is the most important thing that you can live by. That you can have hope in your life. But before we talk about what happens if it's true, and I want to get there, I want to talk about what happens if it's not true. Because I believe that Paul could have gone further with what he said. All that he left us with is that Christianity are people that could be most pitied. And I think he could have said so much more. Here's some. Jesus said many things. And I don't know if you know this, but our society lives by those things. We live in a post-Christian society. Things like, love thy enemy. Things like, love thy neighbor as thyself. There's actually no reason to do those things because all of Jesus' teachings were based on the reality of Himself. He is either a liar or He's true. There's actually no reason to love anyone if what Jesus said isn't true. There's actually no reason to have any morality whatsoever. And I want you to to sit with this for a second. Because morality in itself is a transcendental idea. There has to be something above us for us to care. There has to be someone or something that is going to reward and to judge. And if God 
is not there, or whoever did not step in and does not care, then why should we care about Him? If Jesus isn't real, then there is no morals. Anything goes. Do what you want. Just don't get caught. That's the best we can live by is ethics. Don't get caught. The society that you live in, and I hope that you live in a just society, and there have been societies that are very unjust. And America will probably be unjust in some ways. At least, it's just a matter of opinions. If there's no morals. If there's no morals, then that means there's no such thing as good and evil. And I just want to take this thought to its fullest. Murderers and rapists are as good as you. And you are as evil as them. Because there is no such thing as good and evil. We have moved beyond good and evil. Do you see the weight that we're talking about here? There's no morals. There's no transcendence. It all comes down to who says what. It's a matter of opinion. Don't get caught. Christians deserve to be pitied. You could actually say so much more. Because we have lived our entire lives in fantasies. I would argue that we've lived better fantasies than anyone else. An idea of a kingdom come an idea of a God of love, an idea of someone who is going to save us, I I would argue that our fantasies are better than everyone else's fantasies because there are still fantasies that everyone is living, but they're fantasies nonetheless, and we deserve to be pitied. But so does everyone else. Because there is no redemption from sufferings. There is no hope. Or is there? Is Christianity a true or false hope? And that's what I want to answer right now. And I want to make it easy for everyone. It's such a simple question. You don't have to wrestle with evolution. You don't have to wrestle with miracles. Go through every single one. You don't have to wrestle with historical revisionism. You don't have to wrestle with every single philosopher and what did they say as if they had power, as if they had truth, as if they had life in themselves. Where are they now? Most of them are dead. The grave has taken them too. You have to wrestle with one question. Christianity. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? And these are the reasons for the resurrection. The church has stated this from the very beginning. The eyewitnesses that were there. And I want you to see this. The eyewitnesses that were there, the Christians, quote-unquote Christians, they weren't Christians, the failed disciples that were there, they believed in a Messiah that was going to conquer Rome who didn't. There were actually supposed to be, there were, there were five, four messiahs before him. They, were, they came, they tried to conquer, and they died. They amassed a following, and they died. And when Jesus came, and he didn't fulfill what they thought he was going to do, they failed him. The failed disciples, in their minds, all left him, And yet they still 
believed because they thought they saw something. Unbelievers believed it. James hated Jesus. They thought he was out of his freaking mind. Go read John 7. What turned James, the brother of Jesus, from a skeptic to the one that writes the epistle of James that you need to hold on to your faith, working out things with fear and trembling to the very end? What turned an unbeliever who was with him his entire life from a skeptic to a believer? Paul says he saw the resurrected Lord, an eyewitness to it. And the enemies of Jesus came to Jesus. Acts speaks about Pharisees, the ones who killed Jesus, coming to Jesus. Paul. Paul was the leading persecutor of the church. Go read the book of Acts. He wanted to kill the church. And something turned him from the one who wanted to kill the church to the leading missionary. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't happen in life. You don't switch armies in the middle of a war, but Paul did. And Paul says, I saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. No one debates that he died. The scriptures are here to tell you that they that he rose from the dead. This is such a radical shift of theology, and I want you to see this. In America, we believe in anything. Our culture is so full of cults and religions that anything goes. We tolerate anything. But in first century Palestine, they viewed God with such reverence that they would not speak His name out loud. And they would not write His name down because they thought it was so holy that whatever they wrote it down on became holy too. And they would never, ever say that a man was God because the Lord their God was one. What turned these first century Jewish men to say a man, a man became God they saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's what they have always said. Non-biblical testimony testifies to that too. Tacitus and Josephus are historians that also hated the church, and they record the same Messiah came and died, but they could not understand why Jesus died and the church exploded. It didn't make sense to their mind. They couldn't fathom it. And they couldn't understand what the Scriptures have always said. The resurrected Lord. Some people like to say that it's a power grab. The church was formed because they wanted power. They wanted money. They wanted prestige or whatever. And I just want to say that that doesn't really work you should go read the Scriptures themselves and you should go read history. The church had a horrible start. I mean, if you want a power grab where everyone dies, everyone loses their family, loses their possessions, and dies in horrible ways in public mockery and crucifixion and whatever, then that is a horrible power grab. I don't understand it. Women were the first testifiers. I don't know if you, if, 
if that offends you, but that's, that's how they, they, their beliefs were women. Did, the testimony of women did not even hold up in court, and yet John writes that women were the first ones to testify that Jesus rose from the dead. And the enemies of Christianity said, we should throw this out. If women were the testifiers, they're just being hysterical. But Christianity, if we're going to make something up, they said, no, that, that's actually what happened. Why would, if they're lying, why would they say it that way? No power play, nothing to gain, and everything to lose. Everyone that saw it became Christians. And that is what 1 Corinthians 15 is trying to get across to you. It is historical bedrock, and it is the bedrock of hope. There are theories. You can doubt anything. And I want to walk you through some of them. There's the swoon theory. It's a fun one. That Jesus Christ on the cross, you know, he swooned. I don't know if you know that word. That's what swoon means. They didn't really die. Like, no one really believes that anymore. Like, how did trained professionals not kill Jesus on the cross? I don't really need to spend time on that one. There's another one. This is a fun one. Uh, The mass hallucination hypothesis. That 500 people, that's claimed in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says you need to go check it out. The 500 people, some are still alive, some have died. Okay, The 500 people, they all saw the same thing. People do hallucinate, especially in certain states, but not 500 people and not the same thing. And even if they did hallucinate, anyone could have produced the body. They said, hey, the hallucinations you're having, Jesus is still in the tomb. You're wrong. Point proven. The only one that has any credence is that the disciples stole the body. And if that is the case, I want you to consider this. The disciples who did not believe Jesus, they believed He was a failed Messiah, took Him back within three days, having an armed Roman guard outside the temple tomb, the resurrection tomb, whatever you want to call it, to lie about it and take it to their grave, to pull off the greatest prank in all of history, to go to their deaths. How far, how much faith will we put in that? People who didn't even believe in Jesus, they didn't even believe in a personal resurrection Yet they're going to die for that? I don't know. I don't buy it. Here's why I think, I want to put one more thing forward as why I believe might be the case why everyone bought the resurrection. The grace of God worked powerfully in Christians and people saw it. Paul says, that by the grace of God, I am what I am. He went from a murderer to a martyr, and people could not fathom what happened. He saw the resurrected Lord. But it wasn't just him, it was others. And here's where I want to tell you a story of a famous Christian called Polycarp. Polycarp was a second-generation Christian, and he is a historical saint. He was the follower of John, 
And during the time of early church, there was intense persecution to be a Christian. To be a Christian meant that you're going to hide your faith because the Romans are trying to seek you and they're trying to arrest you and they're going to kill you publicly. Because to be a Christian meant that you're not going to swear allegiance to Caesar. And Polycarp was the leader of the church and they arrested him and they took him to trial. And while he is going to trial, there is a crowd surrounding him, chanting, death to the atheists, down with the atheists. Because ironically, Christians were called atheists back then. They were hated because they didn't love the gods. And nowadays, we're hated because we do. And as he's experiencing this, he's go, he goes up to the judge, and the judge says, Do you renounce the Lord Jesus Christ and swear allegiance to Caesar? And as the tradition goes, at this time, it says he heard a voice from heaven that says, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Play the role of the man. And here's what he says. Eighty-six years have I served my Lord, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? And he died. He was burned alive publicly. Do you want to know why I believe Christians, they, they bought the idea of Christianity? Because Christians lived better and died better than anyone else in all of history. And they saw that. They saw their hope. They saw the testimony that a man rose again And I'm here to say to you what those saints died to say to them. That Christ rose from the dead. And here's what that means. The resurrection stands true whether you believe it or not. Whether you see it or not. Whether your sister sees it. Whether your brother sees it. Whether your professor sees it whether they continue in the faith or not, whether the church leaders stay or fall, whether we look bigoted in this corrupt culture or not, the resurrection stands true as it always has stand true. And whether you hold on to your faith or you believe in vain, whether or not I see you at the gates or you see me at those heavenly gates, the resurrection stands true because it is based on a historical reality. It means that the grace of God is true and is at work powerfully tonight. Just as it was worked powerfully in Paul, just as it was at work powerfully in Polycarp and those saints who chose to live their lives for 86 years and die. It means that sin is conquered, so let it be fully conquered in you. It means that Christ is risen and must be proclaimed. Is he being proclaimed in your life?
And it means that each of you who have not yet have an appointment at that baptismal, whether you feel like it or not, whether you feel fear for it or not, because Christ is true and He is calling us to Himself. And His grace transforms us and is ready to work powerfully in you. It's true, and His grace is true, and His grace will work powerfully in your whole life. And finally, it means that hope, hope is a reality that you can build your whole life on. It is historical bedrock. It is a man named Jesus Christ. And hope is a powerful thing. I want to end our time with Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your message. I ask that your truth has shown in their hearts, Christian and non-Christian, and they could see the historical bedrock that they are built on. Lord, I ask that as we go, that we could be fathoming what it means to be built on truth, that we would hold on to it tightly and not listen to whatever anyone else says. God, I pray that you would fill their lives with hope and meaning, and that meaning comes from you. God, I ask that they could understand their calling, their heavenly calling, just as the church has always had, to live lives full of faith and joy and hope in you. Jesus, I ask for this for them. I ask that your spirit would fill them. It is in Jesus Christ's name that I pray. Amen.